Hey everyone, Maddie and I just wanted to remind you that if you review with a few sentences on Apple Podcasts and we get to 50 ratings by the end of this year, then on New Year's Day, Maddie and I will post a video of us drawing from a hat one of the random usernames from one of the reviewers and whoever that username is, they will win a $25 Amazon gift card. So if you want to find out more about this, follow us on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. We now have a YouTube channel. Welcome to Aiming for the Moon. I am Taylor Bledsoe. And I'm Maddie Henry. And on this podcast, we interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. That's right. Today, we'll be interviewing Tim Kendall, who is the former president of Pinterest and former director of monetization at Facebook. And he is now the current CEO of Moment. So, here's the interview. Well, welcome, Mr. Kindle, to the interview. It's great to have you on. So you are the former president of Pinterest, the former Facebook director of monetization, and now the current director, sorry, not director, current CEO at Moment, which is basically an app that keeps people off their phones. So it's great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for for having me. Awesome. So I just wanted to make this clear with all of our listeners. So I know what monetization is personally, but I just want to make sure our, basically our listeners know what it is. So what did you do at Facebook as the director of monetization? Yeah, well, I, uh, I came in when the company was um, small, uh, both in terms of employees, but also users. There are probably a couple million, uh, more than a couple, probably five or six million users and um, you know, about 100 employees. And it wasn't really clear at this point, this was almost 15 years ago, how they were going to make money. And uh, they, for some reason, I say for some reason, because it's not like I was uniquely qualified to do the job, but they hired me to um, come in, look at the business, meaning look at the service, like how are users using the service? And on the basis of that, come up with a bunch of hypotheses for what, what sort of business revenue source uh, there might be for Facebook. And so uh, I spent you know, joined in 2006, spent the first year um, looking at different ways that the business could make money. And then we settled on advertising. And so I spent the balance of my time there um, building out and scaling that, that revenue source. That's, that's very fascinating. That's great. So when did you realize how much effort goes into keeping people on their phones and what was your reaction? Um, well, in a sense, I knew when I joined the company that there was a lot of effort put into making Facebook, we use the word engaging, right? But, but we knew that, and there was a lot of effort in building the product and the product was in fact an engaging product. And so, um, I guess the answer is I realized right when I joined that that's what the business was that we were in. Um, I think what I didn't realize is that um, because of sort of the all knowing and progressively, 
progressive way that the algorithm got smarter and smarter and smarter, that we were going to kind of end up in the situation that we're in today. You know, um, it's, it's not like what Facebook is doing or has done is fundamentally so different than what you all do on your podcast. I mean, you're, you're, your media, your form of media, and you're supported by advertising, right? Yes, yes. And so that's what Facebook is. It's media. It's supported by advertising. The difference is that they've used technology to come up with 3 billion Taylors and Maddies to talk to people in a way that's super engaging. So they have 3 billion listeners. So yeah, it, it definitely sounds really fascinating that it's basically like media, the podcast and the news media in general, it's kind of the same way that they make money, but it's like, it's, yeah. the difference is that there's a person managing that advertising and there's an algorithm managing that advertising. Well, the, yes, well, there's, there's, and, and I think maybe more importantly, there's a person who figures out what to talk about on CNN, right? Somebody curates the programming based on what they think the whole audience is going to want to hear. In this case, that sort of curation and, and programming selection is done on the fly in a very personalized way at, at Facebook. Um, so in a sense, it's like, you know, by the way, I think the problem here is the business model combined with the all-knowing algorithm, but it's not like Facebook is evil for choosing advertising as the business model. I think, I think what, um, what's different about Facebook and really any of these companies in this category that I'll call sort of big social, I call it big social cause it's like, you know, it's another version of um, an industry that I think takes advantages of it, of its consumer to profit in the way that big oil took advantage of the consumer um, and big tobacco and big sugar. And now we've got big social, um, you know, I think the, I think what makes big social unique is that these algorithms, they've, they've come up with sort of the drug that will just keep people coming back and will be more and more addictive each and every day. And because it's sort of that algorithm develops and grows in an unsupervised way, it starts to do things that people can't predict and that lead to unintended consequences. You know, the, the, the best example of that, there, there are lots of examples of that, <laughs> but um, the best example of that is that the algorithm has actually figured out that if Taylor, you're on the left, you're a liberal, I'm a conservative. It actually has figured out that if it can create a wedge between us and push us further apart, sort of imperceptibly over weeks and months and years, we are both more engaged in the service because we're more radicalized, we're more extreme, we're more likely to. Um, think that we're right, that the other is wrong. So I'm more um, dug in on my stance on the right, and you're more dug in on your stance on the left. 
And we are both in this like self-righteous, angry cycle of just getting more and more radicalized and, 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 and angry. And that's really good for business. And it, but it's not like Cheryl and Mark said, hey, come up with a great idea. Let's let's throw a wedge between Taylor and Tim and we'll make a lot of money. <laughs> right. Instead, it's like, let's give this really smart, smart algorithm um, that we're not going to supervise because we actually it's really hard to understand exactly what it's doing. Um, let's just give it an objective, which is get Taylor and Tim to spend as much time as possible. Go. And that's one of the one of many things that it figured out. And that's the that's the unintended consequence that you know the film obviously highlights, and that we now as a as a country and a world are facing. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. That was one of the last points of the social dilemma itself. It talked of it basically showed this graph of the polarization of the world. You have the left over here, and you have the right over here. That's one of the reasons that we use the term left and right. They're so opposite now. So that's what's really fascinating about it, and it's almost scary. That if you think about it, an algorithm, they don't know anything about the world itself because it's never actually in the physical world. So they don't really know much about emotions. But if you give something in, that's, so to speak, outside the world an objective like that, it figured out that the best way to keep someone engaged is to make them angry. So that's honestly very disturbing to a lot of people. I think that's why a lot of people have a problem with social media. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's again, I don't give this example to let Facebook off the hook, but they're not the only ones that figured that out. Fox and CNN have figured that out too. <laughs> like their business and MSNBC, their business is just to basically confirm your view and make you angry at the other side. That is that is very fascinating. I do wonder though, is that uh, basically a product of what social media has done? Because there totally you have fair. the left and the right. So it could be the fact that social media has created, so to speak, CNN and Fox. And they're just going off of that. Or as you say, that that's their business model. Yeah. I mean, what I suspect, and I don't know the answer to this, but I have, I have read some research about where we be, we start as a culture, we started to become divergent in a way that you just didn't see 30, 40 years ago. And a lot of it does trace back to the beginning of cable TV, which is when sort of, we decided, you being on the left, me being on the right, decided to watch to get our news and facts from different sources. I don't think it was nearly as pronounced as what we see today when we look, watch either of those channels. So I don't think that Facebook invented the wheel. I think in, in a sense, sort of cable TV did. But I think that social media has just, put, you know, accelerated this to a, to a pace and a, and a, yeah, a volume that's uh, really troubling. So I'm switching gears a little bit, and I definitely agree with what you're saying. So another big aspect that the social dilemma kind of starts off with is how, well, social media itself affects and social networking affects the people who are on it, who use it a lot. And it seems to say that it breaks away from the deep relationships that a lot of people have. So I am very curious what was your reaction when you started seeing that it actually, it has like a, an effect on everyone who uses it itself, basically a negative effect? Well, I don't think it's so clear that it's like all negative. I think it's a mixed bag. I think in the last few years, 
and I don't have data to support this. This is just, you know, arguing from anecdote. It does seem like there's more negative that's coming out of these services than positive. Um, I mean, a big reason why I left, um, you know, sort of big tech and, and started working on Moment was that I was really concerned that these big social services on our phones were taking over our lives and that we were sort of losing our agency. We were kind of losing control of the phone. Um, and, and I really felt like I needed to do something to sort of push back against that, that trend and, and ideally provide tools, a set of tools that people could use to get back control. Um, and so when I first started to realize just how little control we had um, and that it was affecting families and teenage mental health, et cetera, et cetera. I, God, I felt uh, scared, guilty, um, upset. And, um, and it wasn't a single point in time. It, it happened over years. Um, I, think, I think I really started thinking about this probably four years ago when I, when I started to think about how our phones were sort of soothed us in the same way the cigarette used to soothe people, right? You just kind of pull it out when you're waiting in line or, you know, when you're bored, when you're sad, when you're depressed, when you're lonely. Um, and I think referring to an earlier point that you made, um, one of the things that I'm particularly troubled by is that I think a big reason why some people get on their phones is that they feel lonely. One of many reasons, but there is a use case, right, where I feel lonely. And I think, well, my friends are on social media. So I pick this up. And I think what you were saying earlier is that the interactions just inherently don't have a lot of depth or meaning. They don't really, um, they don't contain the dynamics that, that, uh, that we see in a normal dialogue like this or an in-person interaction. And so it sort of prevents this, it presents this kind of false antidote to loneliness. It's like, well, I'm lonely, so I need to be around people. Well, I can be around a lot of people on Facebook, so I'll go on Facebook. And what does Facebook do? Well, Facebook throws popularity at me and comparison at me and vanity and voyeurism and all these things that actually don't make me feel that good. And by the way, at the end of that, I'm worse off. I'm still just as lonely. And now I'm, you know, kind of bummed out, maybe a little anxious. Um, and so, one of the things that, uh, you know, we work on at the moment and, and we're still sort of in the prototype phases of this is like, how do we help people understand and, and guide them towards uh, when they are lonely to not necessarily be on social media, but instead to call a friend, but instead to have a substantive interaction with a family member, um, and so we're trying to figure out if that's something you can build into a product um, that that does that and, and also, you know, limits the universe of people that I interact with to something a little more realistic, like the 5, 10, 15, 20 people that really matter to me, that I really care about and love. The part of the problem with the advertising business model of social media is that their incentives are because they know that if they connect you to more people, you'll spend more time. Their incentives are actually to, 
distribute your attention across all these different people, hundreds, if not thousands of people, many of whom you don't care about. I mean, I sort of joke about, uh, it's not really a joke. It's like you go on Facebook to learn what 700 friend 734 is eating for breakfast or what, like, it's just, I don't care what they're doing. And I don't even care about the person because it's not even the, it's not even the friend graph that really matters to me. Yeah, you bring up so some very fascinating points. As you mentioned at the very beginning, you said that, well, not all of social media's aspects are negative. And I actually really do agree with you because during the pandemic, especially, honestly, social media was one of the only social interactions we had. Yeah. So that actually showed a lot of the good part of social media. We talked about this with another guest, Dr. Adam Alter, who talked, who read about social media and studied about that, too. And also, as you said, social media, the interactions aren't as deep as we would probably want them to be. Yeah. And it's it's really it's really interesting. I find that very fascinating, honestly. Yeah. 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 It turns out that I mean, we study this at moment quite a bit, like the way that people get close and sustain closeness, human beings, is that we it's actually through escalating self-disclosure. And reciprocal self-disclosure. And that doesn't happen, right? That's not like this. It doesn't happen in one minute, right? Over the course of hanging out for hours and hours, I start to trust you. I start to feel comfortable with you. So I, I tell you something about myself that maybe I don't tell everybody. And what you what, what happens there is you see vulnerability. You see that I trust you. And so there's a reciprocation. And then you tell me something. And, and there's this back and forth that happens when people sort of study this. And that's what makes people close. And, you know, the, the current platforms out there do not facilitate that at all. And that's why we, we often don't feel as, as close to people when we're just interacting, when we're just sort of liking their content, right? That's not, that's not a, there's nothing sort of vulnerable about that interaction at all. One could maybe argue that posting something about myself is kind of socially vulnerable, but it's not something that's going to actually strengthen a given relationship with, with, with one or two or three people that I really care about. What do you, I'm curious, what, what social media tools do you use? So right now, honestly, Maddie and I, we're, um, we're not allowed to have social media ourselves. So that's right. kind of funny. But what did uh, you do during the quarantine? You said you, without social media, you wouldn't have stayed connected. Yeah, so a lot of what we use, a lot of our schools have group chats. So we text in there. We okay. have uh, schools. That's that's another object um, aspect that people don't always, I th- think, think about. Instead of sending pictures to social media, they can send it to group chats. That's a lot of what we did. Yeah. Um, we had group Zoom so calls. so much better, by the way. Oh, yeah. And then for our podcast, that's the only time we actually have social media is basically just to stay connected with our listeners. So honestly, uh, we don't know our listeners personally. So that's one of the best ways to actually get to connect with them. Yeah. But in that sense, you're a media company, right? And Like you've got you you have a business and, and that's how that's how media company businesses podcasts are run. Right. They're with there's a social media presence and there's the actual media product. And that makes you know, that makes total sense. And and um Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. It's terrific that you have a tool that is contained to your school um, for now, right? It's just like you get, you get a lot of the good with, 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 without a lot of the risk of 
these broader platforms and and sort of all the manipulate manipulative tactics that they you know use like streaks and viral videos and all that sort of stuff yeah it, it is very interesting so i'm moving on a little bit especially since we've talked a lot, a lot about time that we spend on our social media and i've heard statistics ranging from people spend 10 to six six hours at least at a minimum on just phones in general regardless of social media video games especially my social media and video games are two of the profound things that people spend all of their time on so I know that you are the CEO of Moment, and that's kind of what you guys do is try to cut down on that, on your time yeah. on your phone. And yeah. like you said, spend deep interactions. So do yeah. you have any, besides obviously downloading Moment, do you have any um, tips for how to stay off your phone? Yeah, I have a couple. Um, you know, the, I'll, I'll give kind of the, the, the basic one-on-one tips, and then I'll give kind of one advanced tip that I've actually just been playing with personally for a while that I think works pretty well. Um, you know, the basics are, you know, I think people with their families agreeing to a time, you know, limits and boundaries are really important with devices. And so I think agreeing to a part of the house where maybe you don't use devices, maybe that's the dinner table, maybe that's the dinner table in the living room and the kitchen, that can work really well. It turns out that when we use these things, it's very contagious. So if there's an area where we don't use it and can't use it, we don't, you, you find you have less of those moments where you see, oh, my mom's using it, so I'm going to pick it up. And then my sister picks it up and then my dad picks it up. And then we're, we're that family at the table all staring at pieces of glass, not talking to each other. Um, so I think that's a good norm and a boundary. Another one is just setting a time, which is, hey, after eight o'clock, we don't use phones or between six and seven thirty. We don't use phones as a family. Um, and then and then the other uh thing that's that's probably the way to move the needle the most if you're really trying to take your six or eight hours of usage and cut down is just set a norm which is easier said than done that you're not going to bring your phone into your bedroom just don't do it and what that does is it cuts down on three of the biggest drivers of of time spent frivolous time spent really on the phone one is when you go to bed Two is when you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep. People love picking up their phones, including me. And then three is when you wake up, if your phone's right there, you you tend to reach for it and can get sucked into something that you don't really intend to get sucked into. It's remarkable when people commit to that bedroom rule and stick to it, how much they're able to reduce their overall uh, phone usage. You know, that's... Yeah, continue. No, 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 you continue. Um, the advanced tip is, is is probably a way to do it on Android. I don't know how to do it on Android uh, because I have a, an Apple phone. But you go into uh, screen time, which is in settings, and you set downtime. So when's the time that I really don't want to use my phone? All right, so I'll set downtime between, you know, call it the window we talked about earlier, 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. And then, look, between six and eight, I still want to have access to my phone and I need my calendar and I want Spotify so I can still listen to music because that's prob- those are kosher things to be doing. Um, so I go into always allowed and I set messaging phone or phone, calendar and Spotify as one of my, my three always allowed apps. And then, and this is the real hack, 
I click change screen time passcode and then I hand it over to my wife and I let her change the password so that I don't know it. I mean, the, for people who are super serious about changing behaviors, you got to get rid of the back door. You got you to use your motivation in this very moment. If we're really motivated right now, you got to say, I'm committing and I'm not going to let myself go back on it. And, and that little trick with my wife that you can do with your parents or your siblings or your partner, um, it eliminates that back door. And, you know, you're, you're going to have some um, agonizing moments, but you can guarantee it'll change your behavior. And if you're really committed, that's, you know, and, and if you study nutrition, this is the way that they change behavior with eating, right? If there's something I really shouldn't eat that I want it, that I always eat all the time that I just want to stop eating, the, the tried and true way is to get it out of the house. And that's hard on this thing. Um, but that, what I just suggested is one way. The other way, uh, which is in the film and, and something that I'd played with, um, before is, is getting one of those kitchen safes where you put the phone in this lock box and then you turn the top of it to a certain time and there's no back door. Although they show in the film, there is a back door, right? You smash it, but it's pretty hard to do. And that's also 30 bucks down the drain or how much exactly. they cost. It's pricey, pricey way to get into it. That is. So yeah, it's funny. Um, our families both use the screen time thing and yeah, you can't get it unless you have that password. Apple's yeah. done a great job of that, which is really yeah. interesting. Yeah. So moving on to the last two questions that we have, we always ask our guests these. And the first question is, what books have had an impact on you and why? Hmm. Well, there's a, there's a book that... Um, I've gotten really interested in Buddhism in the last couple of years. And one of my favorite books that I think is ex an accessible way to sort of explore Buddhism and meditation. And, you know, I'd say at a high level, not being too attached to how things turn out in your life is this book called when things fall apart by this woman, uh, Pema Chodron. Um, it's really helped me to, you know, not get too concerned about outcomes because a lot of them I can't control. And, and also not to get so fixated on labeling what this moment is all about. Like, is this a bad moment? Is it a good moment? Should I hate this moment? Should I love this moment? Uh, she makes this great point that we just, we spend so much time basically seeking out pleasure and avoiding pain an exorbitant amount of energy doing that in our life. I certainly do that day to day. And she just, she, she pushes you and gives some frameworks for how human beings might be better served if they could just sit in whatever is this moment. Right. And it might be painful, but it happens to be the moment. And so it might be a good teacher for us. Uh, it might be a delightful moment. Um, well, things are, ephemeral and short-lived and non-permanent. And so it's going to stop being delightful at some point. So don't get too attached to it. Um, I guess in the same realm, uh, Why Buddhism is True is another great book. If you're, if you're curious about 
sort of the faith or just the practices because you, you don't even have to buy into the faith at all to to learn from some of the the things that that buddhism i think has gotten right about life um so those are two do i have to come up with three you want me to come up with a third i mean you don't have to we can end it there if you if you want <laughs> um i'm reading barack obama's book which just came out um and it seems good so far I thought Michelle Obama's book was phenomenal. Super inspiring. I mean, what a story. Yeah, that those all sound very um, interesting. I haven't read any of those in particular. I actually, yeah. I've people keep recommending the Michelle Obama book, but I've never read it. And I know that the Barack Obama book just came out. So then yeah. our last question is another one that we ask all of our guests. What advice do you have for teenagers? Oh, <laughs> Um, well, I think when I was a teenager, I was really focused on getting on with it, getting on with life, getting, getting, you know, getting on to being a senior, getting on to going to college. And, and, and I think in a sense, I, I've lived maybe too much of my life than I'd like to admit that way, which is like kind of rushing to the next milestone. And, and, um, I guess I would really encourage teenagers to figure out how the different tools and, you know, there are lots of tools for this, including meditation, including aspects of Buddhism, how I could get myself to be more present in the here and now, because, I certainly, and I still do this, I spend a lot of time, you know, they call it future tripping um, or agonizing over the past. And it's kind of a waste of energy. We're, we're so programmed to do that. So this isn't an easy thing to do. But I do think that when we're really present, God, we're, we're, we're happier or at least we're more content and settled. Um, and I don't know. I just, I think I spent a lot of my teenage years just worrying about whether I was going to amount to anything. And I think in a sense, I, I, I wasted a lot of time thinking about that and, and worrying about like, Oh, I, am I doing the right thing? Am I taking the right class? Am I, you know, and there's social versions of that too, right? I'm hanging out with the right group, uh, you know, and, and I wish if I could go back and give myself advice, I'd tell myself to relax, figure out how to really be in the moment. And then, um, you know, I think part of what can really help people be in the moment is, is being grateful for what, what is and what is now and what is, what do I already have? And I was, it's it's taken me until pretty recently to realize I'm not that grateful of a person and I need, and, and by the way, by being really proactive about trying to point out to myself each and every day, what I'm grateful for, that has a nice reinforcing effect. And when you're grateful, you're more present, right? You don't spend too much time thinking about, Oh, well, when I, when this happens, I'll be happy, right? Because you're, you're happy now you're grateful now. Um, so be present, have a gratitude practice, 
don't worry too much about how things are going to turn out. You're going to be okay. So be grateful, be present, and yes, be thankful. And be in the moment, as literally the app that you're the CEO of says. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great having you on. Yeah, thank you both. It was super fun. fascinating interview. So if any of you guys have seen The Social Dilemma, then you know that a lot of the time is spent criticizing social media and the effect it has on all of its users. But I thought it was really interesting that while we did talk a lot about how social media affects people in the negative way, we also talked a lot about how social media affects on the positive aspects. For example, like us, the Aiming for the Moon podcast, we can connect with all of you guys and we have been doing it on Instagram Twitter, and YouTube. There's a plug. You should go check us out. (laughs) But also, it was really interesting that not only, well, obviously, we've been in a pandemic, and being on social media has helped a lot. We've been able to see pictures of our friends and pictures of our friends' dogs. So, which, who doesn't love a dog? Or I guess if you're a cat person, uh, pictures of kittens, I guess? I don't know. So social media has been good and it's not, it isn't always a bad thing. And I thought it was really interesting that he kept bringing up all that along with all the effects that social media has in the negative side. Definitely. That was one of my favorite points in the social dilemma. I loved how all of them were tech experts and they all helped technology. They weren't meaning to be like, but he was helping Facebook and help Facebook become what Facebook is today. And he was talking about, yeah, it's positive, but I love their unique perspective and they can really give us some really incredible insights and advice with social networking and social media. Yeah. I thought that was also really fascinating. Um, and yeah, like I literally just said, I thought like th- it wasn't just that they were saying, oh no, social media. That wasn't always the point. Cause if you, if you think about it, those are the people who literally help create social media at the same time. Like I know that a lot of it is focused around negative stuff about social media, which a lot of it is negative. Don't get me wrong, because we've been talking about that a lot on our podcast. But also, you don't want to forget a lot of the positives, like how it helped us during the pandemic, how it helps you see pictures of your friend's dogs, and all the good benefits of it. I feel like that really ties in well with his advice when he said to be thankful and to be in the moment. And I feel like if we have that mindset of, oh, I'm only going to spend 15 minutes right now and then I'll go watch a family movie or, oh, I'm going to be thankful the person may have a better car or a better house than I do, but I'm still thankful that I have a roof over my head, that that would cut back on a lot of the negative side, the negative side of social media that everyone's super upset about. So on to our announcements. So like we said, we have a website at aimingforthemoon.com. Go check us out. We have profiles of all the guests that we've on, and you can learn a little bit more about them and what they look like. Um, We have a thing called podcast logs, a more personal spin on what it's like to do a podcast. Um, Go follow us on all the social media, Twitter and Instagram. You can find us at aiming for the number four moon. And as a big announcement, we just got a YouTube channel. So you can find us on YouTube and just at aiming for the moon podcast yeah aiming for the moon podcast on youtube um and we've posted three episodes and that's three episodes and you have like the interview itself the video so it's dr angela duckworth dr adam alter and david epstein so two three sorry really cool interviews and then you also see the video component so you can see what they look like and how it was actually like interacting with them so it's really fun go check that out 
we have like eight subscribers of recording. Let's see if we can get that up. I, I know we can because we have more <laughs> listeners than that. <laughs> so the other thing is, I believe you guys heard it at the beginning of this episode. Review the podcast and do a few sentences, even if it's negative, which that's, that would be really awkward with me having to email you and say like, hey, you won money from us. <laughs> but I guess be honest. Um, then you can enter the competition. So we're trying to get to 50 reviews by the end of this year and follow us, like Maddie said, on all the socials, even on YouTube, and we'll be announcing more about that. So check out more on social media and everywhere else to find out more about the competition. Then Maddie is reading Deep Work. She's going to probably finish it at the very latest by New Year's. So if we get to 50 reviews, which I really hope we will, we'll post a video of us doing the raffle and Maddie will have her Maddie's opinion done by this. Yep. Lots to look forward to. Yep. So anyway, rate, review, subscribe, share it with your uncle, your grandpa, your grandma, your friends, other teenagers, and anyone that you can email and text. Anyway, don't forget, set your sights high and aim for the moon.